Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. On the flight back from his trip to China last week, French President Emmanuel Macron gave an interview that has sparked heated debate both in Europe and the United States. During the interview, Macron discussed his vision for building a strategically autonomous Europe that could become the world's quote-unquote third superpower, rather than merely being America's follower. While this general idea is far from novel in Macron's thinking, the specific way in which he expressed it this time has created new tensions. Macron's comments suggesting that Europe should not pick sides between the United States and China over Taiwan have been particularly controversial, prompting significant criticism on both sides of the Atlantic. Yet, at the same time, the Biden administration has downplayed the interview and emphasized the close U.S.-French relationship, while other EU leaders, such as European Council President Charles Michael, have defended Macron's push for greater European sovereignty. So, how should we interpret the speech and its implications for European unity uh, and the accelerating geopolitical competition with China. To discuss all this and more, we're really excited to have back to the podcast Liana Fix and Tara Varma uh, today. Welcome back, both. For those of you who don't know our two guests, Liana Fix is a fellow for Europe at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's a historian and political scientist with expertise in German and European foreign and security policy, European security, transatlantic relations, Russia and Eastern Europe. And Tara is a visiting fellow in the Center for the United States in Europe at the Brookings Institution. She focuses on French defense and security policy in the European framework, as well as ongoing efforts to materialize European sovereignty in various policy fields. All right, Tara, let's start with you. Um, You're the great Macron explainer. Can you set the table for us, tell us about the interview, uh, the context in which it was given, and maybe pull out a couple of the key points that he made in that interview. Sure. So I think actually, I mean, I I look at what Macron is doing. I've been looking at what he's been doing for the past few years. I think I'm one of the Macron, if not explainers, at least, you know, I try to decipher as much as possible. I'm also realizing now that all of us are interpreting in our own ways what he's saying. So what I can say is my interpretation of what he said. I think, so, the political interview and the French version of the interview, which was published in the newspaper Les Echos, were both proofread by the Élysée, so by the presidency. They knew precisely what was in there, and they were expecting, I think, some form of a backlash or reaction. And I think they're okay with that. I think this is also what we struggle with usually is that, you know, a lot of people in Europe and the US were thinking, well, this sparked so much criticism and vehement reactions, then probably the Elysee's reaction would be to back off. And it's quite contrary. He's doubling down on his comment, confirming that, you know, he meant what he said, which what a lot of us have been saying. It's not a mistake. He did this deliberately. So I think we need to be very clear about that. Um, again, the comments were proofread. He knew what he was saying. He wanted to do this. This is what I call the Macron method in a piece that I had published for ECFR in 2019 after the NATO brain death comment, which is that he wants to spark the debate. He doesn't mind getting negative criticism because ultimately, actually, like in 2019, everything right now in the discussion is about what he said. He is central to the debate. You know, Polish leaders and other European leaders and Charles Michel and the Biden administration, they are all reacting to Macron. Everything 
begins and ends with him. So for him, this is a victory in itself. Again, he feels like he's the one driving the debate. He knew that Europeans were going to react quite vehemently. I have to say, I find it interesting that the Biden administration has been reacting not so negatively to this for the time being. I think, I mean, you know, in private, probably there have been more complicated conversations, but I think the idea also is that the U.S. doesn't want to display any show of disunity. And I think, so Macron said a lot of things, I can't come back on everything. I would say the the one sentence that sparked, I think, the most comments and is the one that is, for me, the most problematic is the fact that he says, um, is it in Europe's interest uh, to accelerate the crisis in Taiwan um, as if, you know, and to contribute to this acceleration of the deterioration, basically, in the Indo-Pacific, which is a region that he has been calling as the French president for Europeans to be more active in. This is what he's been doing also in the past several years. So I think that contradicts his own agenda. But the fact that he's basically equating U.S. and Chinese actions in the deterioration in the region, I think that is problematic. He has reminded, of course, that France is for the preservation of the status quo, but he did this a posteriori. He didn't do it at the time. And I don't really understand his positioning here because, you know, he seemed to say basically Taiwan is not an issue that concerns European. It's, you know, it's a regional issue for Asia. But this also contradicts everything that he's been saying on he and others on Ukraine, which is that if even if Ukraine happened on European soil, it's a global issue. So if Ukraine is a global issue and everyone should care. I don't really understand why Taiwan shouldn't be, a, you know, if the situation were to deteriorate, why Taiwan wouldn't be a global issue that Europeans and Americans and Asian partners would have to care about. And so the fact that he wants to pursue this strategy of the en même temps, so at the same time, there are limits to that because you end up undermining, first of all, your own message. I think the European sovereignty, strategic autonomy agenda, where he's been saying, actually, Europeans need to do more the way he's been saying it I, I'm, has not been helpful, but, you know, actually the needle has moved a little bit. We're also seeing people in the administration here saying, yes, Europeans de- do, need, de- do need to do more. And now suddenly he says this, and this is to me, pro- it's problematic on the substance, but it's also problematic because he is undermining his own message. I know Jim and I are both chomping at the bit to get in a question, but <laughs> Mike, very quick follow up. Is you know how representative are Macron's views um, among within the bureaucracy? Um, because we're reminded, right, that at the same time that he's making these comments, the frigate, the French frigate, is going through Taiwan Straits while the Chinese are exercising. So, help us place his comments, if you can, kind of in and whether or not they represent or are in tension with um, wider views in in the French government. I can't say how representative they are. I think people feel quite strongly about what he said and not in a positive way. I also know that he met with a number of French Chinese experts who are renowned Chinese, you know, China experts on the international scene and young, you know, older generation, younger generation. They have different views on a set of issues, but on Taiwan, I'm pretty sure they said the same thing. So it was his decision again to say and and accept that these things were written in the interview. Ultimately, he is the one in the the way the French system works, setting the tone on French foreign policy. So there might be people who disagree with him, but what he says basically is the line and is policy. And I think this is also, and we can get back to this later in the discussion, one of my issues with the Macron method is that he does, you know, he wants to contribute to the debate. He wants to speak 
and and he wants to be the one that sparks this debate and he wants his ideas to be remembered but the thing is his contribution is not just another contribution to a policy debate what he, when he speaks it's policy it's not a debate and so if he wants to have a debate he can have that with experts french european americans you know partners in the region i think that's totally fine and more than welcome and i think the french system would need actually to do that more but when he speaks so openly and knows that you know it's a political interview so it's going to have widespread reach everywhere in the world and of course on both sides of the atlantic he knows what he's doing and he has decided to do it and so i think you know, when he says something, it's policy, whether he likes it or not. Can I ask a real quick question? I really do want to hear from Liana, too, particularly what the Germans think about this. Uh, but 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 just I'm going to ask two questions in one, because I know Andrea really wants to jump back in. And if I don't ask you two of them right now, then I'll never get them out. But but the first question is, why did he do it right after that visit um, to uh, Beijing? Why did he do it on the plane? I mean, you might, you probably don't know, but I mean, just to speculate, uh, uh, why was it that um, that the timing was such that he 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 did it? Because that certainly kind of hurt the message too. It distracted from the messages when he did it, because that gives a whole different context to what he said. Uh, so that's the that's the that's the first question. Um, uh, and the second question is, and and uh, and, uh, and this is for both of you too. I just kept thinking about Vanderlein being part of this trip. I, I, I was a little, I was a little uh, confused why she would catch a ride with Macron as if she's the lesser party. She's the head of the head of Europe, you know. I mean, she's the head of the EU. She is Europe. If there's got to be someone who's the head of Europe, and it's her. So you would have thought that, you know, that. But she, she kind of appeared just from the beginning, as if she was a, you know, kind of catching a ride with the boss. Uh, and and then um, uh, you know his his visit kind of overshadowed hers, and then he makes this remark which really undercut her. She wasn't on the plane, of course; she had gone off somewhere else. But still, she she was, as we say in the Pentagon, she was caught in the frag pattern. Uh, you know, so I just find those two things just amazing. Uh, and I was wondering what you all think about that. So I'll just jump in very quickly so because I also really want to hear from Liana. Uh, why did he do it on the plane? I have no idea. I think that's also part of his strategy. I think he wanted to, in French, we have this expression, battre le fer tant qu'il est chaud, to basically use the energy and all the focus that was on his trip to kind of continue this. And I would say from his PR strategy point of view, it's actually pretty good. If you're thinking of Macron working the Macron method, the trip was last week. He came back on Friday and we're Thursday now, basically it's been seven days and we're talking only about this and we'll keep talking about this. So I think in yeah. terms of his own strategy, actually, and what he wants to achieve, I think he was probably right to do so. It's just that, again, it you know, we're this is all, all that we've been talking about basically everywhere else in the world because we're, we've been talking about it in the US, in Europe, but also Asian partners, uh, partners close to France are also wondering what this trip means. I think he went there with so many objectives, you know, trying to get C to move the needle on, on Ukraine, uh, getting China back into the climate negotiations, trade discussions. I mean, the, the, it was such a tall order. And now basically the what he's getting from the trip itself is, is really not so positive. So I think that's also 
a really problematic issue. The way he's been talking about strategic economy has been totally manipulated by the Chinese side. He's been portraying it basically, and the interview confirms this, as a way to be equidistant between the US and China and to be able to work with China. The Chinese are exploiting this so much, and this totally undermines the message that he's been putting out for the past five years, which is to say strategic autonomy is not against the US. Well, basically what he says in this interview is, in total contradiction with that. On von der Leyen's trip, she was added uh, later on in the decision. He's been Europeanizing trips and engagements with China since basically 2019, when he hosted Xi Jinping in Paris. Um, Chancellor Merkel was there, and at the time, European Commission Jean-Claude Juncker was there as well. When he returned to China in 2019, he brought a German education minister with him, so he also knew that he needed to pursue this Europeanization of the trip. To be honest, I think in retrospect, her trip was much more positive because she had a few days before given an incredible speech at the Mercator Foundation where she laid out a new, to me, a renewed version of what European China policy should be. I encourage everyone to read that speech because I think it is really, really helpful in, in setting a new framework. She had meetings with Xi Jinping where she actually raised her own issues. And under the, the, the way basically we've been talking about her trip was undermined, again, is very much Chinese propaganda. Chinese social media, print media, has absolutely tried to, to, to create a wedge between Macron and her. They've been trashing her online, saying that she was just an American puppet, and that you know she had taken her instructions from Washington before coming to Beijing. So I think we should actually try and not replicate that, But when, because when you look at the substance and what she did, I think it was actually really, really good. And that is what makes me a bit hopeful about European-China policy right now. Yeah, I think we're both really curious to hear how... Um... The, the German reaction to the speech? Well, I think from a German perspective and those who look at Germany's China policy, Scholz's trip to Beijing, which was criticized yeah. back then, <laughs> actually looks so much better. So we as think thinkers who have been critical towards Scholz now think, oh, wow, in hindsight, this was actually quite a successful trip compared to compared to Macron's trip. And um it was not the reason why Scholz didn't want to go with Macron because he was expecting this kind of thing. I mean, he wanted to go on his own to Beijing because it was his first trip to meet Xi Jinping. But I think now many people in the chancellery think, oh, thank God we didn't we didn't go with Macron, but but we did our we did our own trip. Um, because what uh, what what is the difference between um, Macron's and Scholz's trip? It's very clear. I mean. Scholz also took a business delegation with him, but it was much smaller. He came away with an actual, well, perhaps not concession, but with a very clear statement from Xi Jinping, the first statement that he made about nuclear threats from the Russian side. And Macron was not able to come back with a concession from Xi on anything that that, that was important on the war in Ukraine. And Macron's trip was against the backdrop of um, Xi Jinping's trip to Moscow, where it was very clear that Xi Jinping and Putin are so close that they will deepen their cooperation at a time when there is concern that at some point, if it's not already taking place, China is coming in with weapon deliveries um, to Ukraine. So against that backdrop, the trip of Macron looked even further detached from reality. Um, and what worries me most about sort of the outcome of that trip is 
that actually Macron undermines entirely the position that he wants to have. So what he wants to have is a strong France in the leader of a strong Europe. But with this trip and the statements, he has once again completely undermined his credibility with many Europeans. And that is something which I find so frustrating when it comes to um, France's project of strategic autonomy, because the core of it I mean, it's true. I mean, that's a correct analysis that we need a stronger European defense, which is able to be more compatible and more coherent. But the result of the way how he's doing it is that um, there are three or four different um, understandings of strategic autonomy, which make it impossible to implement in the future. And the one is obviously from Central and Eastern Europeans who see it as a decoupling from the United States. And now we also have the strong push from the Chinese side who view strategic autonomy as a useful tool to drive a wedge between the between Europe and the US. So he's actually hurting the very project that he wants to pursue, um, uh, sort of acting acting the way he does. And again, some of his analysis was right. I mean, that he said Europe has become more dependent on the United States when it comes to defense. That's true. And that's a problem. And it should be in the US interest to reduce this kind of dependency. Um, when it comes to to von der Leyen's part, von der Leyen's part, I would very much agree with Tower. I think he has she has actually come out stronger from that, because now her position, which some might have portrayed before with her speech and so on, as rather the hawkish side, has moved towards the middle as the more reasonable side, because Macron has become so soft in his trip to Beijing. So actually, while she was beforehand sort of the avant-garde in having a more critical, de-risking China policy, now she can become more the middle ground between those who find Macron too soft and between the the, the Central and Eastern Europeans who, who have a different, uh, more hawkish perspective on that. So I think it's, it was actually helpful. And again, Germany is, 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 is somewhere in between. And that has always been the case with um, strategic autonomy, that they were skeptical of France's ambition to become the leader in Europe with strategic autonomy. And they always wanted strategic autonomy to be placed within the transatlantic relationship and not as an effort to become more independent from the United States. Um, we've seen some criticism from politicians in, in Germany. We haven't seen any high level response to that. But again, I think the chancellor in hindsight is even happier than they were before with this trip. And I think it has also confirmed a great description of Macron and Tower has said this perfectly well um, of being a think tanker in chief. I think Wim Montas, um, the journalist and double IWS colleague um, has framed this. That's what he is. He seems to be the think tanker in chief, which makes everything that he says so problematic. Oh, that, that's really, that's, that's really a great way to, to put it. I, I just, I asked for a quick uh, follow-up just to say that I, I, I agree with you, what you all are saying in terms of substance and uh, van der Leyen, in terms of a good substantive meeting, you're right. I think she sounds that she did, but it just seems to me, and maybe this is a typical Washington thing, but it seems to me that her her part of it, though, was so overshadowed by Macron and the, and the big state visit. And then the, the conversation on the plane and the, the interview on the plane has kind of sucked all the oxygen out of the room in terms of, of uh, what she did. And so... Um, you know, Tara, like you said, here we are, we're a week out of the visit and we're all talking about Macron and we're not talking about van der Leyen. And so what she did is kind of lost in the noise of the of the Macron visit. And so I I, I think that's unfortunate because uh, I think the experts like you guys, particularly 
see the good that's coming from that. But the general EU population and the transatlantic population, it's all about Macron. And, and they don't, I don't think there's an understanding that she actually is, is in a better place now, as you were pointing out. Over to you, Andrea. <laughs> Go ahead and respond, Tara. I think you look like, yeah. Well, I just, <clears throat> just wanted to say, I think, you know, right now we're in the immediate aftermath of the trip and the interview and talking about Macron, but my sense is that von der Leyen's strategy is actually a long-term strategy and it's okay that she's yeah. distancing herself from the trip. I think, you know, she's doing she's doing things in several steps. I think the, the speech was, of course, the, the right first step because it's a clarification of how she sees uh, European-China policy and what she thinks Europe needs to do. She went with Macron because, of course, member states in the European Union play an immense role and they're still, they still have their prerogative when it comes to foreign and security policy. So she went with one of uh, Europe's uh, decision makers. And I think she's going to continue working on that. I think it would be helpful if she came and, you know, continued this exchange about what European China policy is because we will need more and more clarification de-risking as she put in her in her speech you know it's it's the beginning of a strategy but it's not an end in itself first of all if if you know if, if you're serious about de-risking then you need to decide which are the fields where europe is moving away a bit from china not cutting itself off completely because i don't think that's what it's about but basically diversifying its partners and if you want to be really strategic then you need to decide who these partners are whom do we want to be working with in the next 10 to 15 years at a time of increased Sino-US competition, which is not now going beyond technological competition. But, you know, there are there are talks about a military confrontation at some point at a time when there are middle powers rising in Africa, in Asia, who want to have a stake and, and a seat at the table as they're entitled to. So we're also undergoing a massive change in, in basically in power balance in the world right now. And I right. think the fact that she's thinking about where Europe sits here is absolutely fundamental. So my hope is that in the mid to, to long term, actually, the fact that she's looking at this in an incremental way is helpful. Yeah. And it will play a role where Germany sort of positions itself. And I think at the moment, it's sort of between Macron and between Ursula von der Leyen and what they decide, which direction they will pursue. And I th think and hope it will be closer to von der Leyen's view, because, I mean, just um, the backlash for Macron's visit. And I mean, the, it, it was not only what he said in this interview, looking at the trip, it was also the joint statement, which was not ideal in many regards when it comes to the human rights aspect, but also the the bombastic nature of this trip. I mean, the fireworks, this video that the Elysee put out where actually the, P <laughs> the PLA was marching in this video and it was all filmed as a really cool thing. Um, and again, against the backdrop of the fact that the biggest concern right now is that China will enable Russia to continue this war and to avert a Russian defeat in this war. Um, that all adds up to this really bad, bad impression, not only the interview. But I have a, so you know, I was thinking about this. I mean, there are, it, there feels like they're mutually, she and Macron mutually using each other, right? So like, it's like she sees Macron as the wedge to divide Europe and the transatlantic relationship. And I wonder if, Mac, I mean, I, I wonder to what extent any of this, this kind of softer, more conciliatory tone from Macron 
stems in part because of his deep concern about Russia-China relations. So I think back before the war, and you know, Macron talked quite a lot about the risk of Russia-China being together and being in alignment. And his approach at that time was to strike a more conciliatory to tone towards Putin, right? And so now, given that that is off the table, that's not an option, part of me was wondering to what extent that tone, this approach is in part driven by what seems to be for him a very genuine concern about that partnership. Be I mean, because, you know, we talk a lot about that here in the United States about, you know, part of a part of their alignment is about the more antagonistic relationship with the United States. And in, in many ways, we're driving them together. And the more that both of them see that they don't have any alternatives or options in the West, then they really have no choice other than each other. And so I don't, to what extent do you, and then I know we can't read Macron's mind, but do you think that this is in part intentional to get Macron or to get Xi to think harder about providing weapons to Russia and to try to mitigate the extent of what she is willing to do for Putin? I'm curious, to hear, ahead, what, yeah. <laughs> I'm curious to hear what Tara says about this. I think sort of um, intellectually, that would make total sense, right? It, it would make total sense to say, well, okay, you the Europeans don't have to be as antagonistic towards the US as China, uh, towards China as the US is, because we can use them to explain to see why it would be a problem if he helps Russia, because look, your relations with Europe are actually good. Do you want to sort of threaten, threaten this kind of relationship? But I wonder whether this intellectual thinking, I don't see any indications in what Macron said in Beijing that would sort of support this line because what he could still have said is he could still have taken a clearer position and a stronger position on Ukraine. He could have outlined more explicitly why that would be such a problem for Europeans if Xi Jinping sends, sends, sends weapons to, to Putin and to Russia. Um, so I feel that in terms of priority, he could have said different signals if that really was the message that he wanted to bring across, saying, well, look, we can have great relations with China and we don't want to put these in danger. But here I am with a very strong statement about how we feel about Ukraine and that European security is an existential matter for us. Um, and that that's what I was missing in his remarks. Absolutely. I, I mean... So I think the Russia-China dimension, it's not about reading his mind. You know, he gave this speech uh, at the ambassador's conference in 2019, right after announcing the rapprochement with Russia. And he said, it is not, I would need to look at the precise wording, but I, I was there and I was taking notes. And he said, it is not in Europe's interest for Russia to move closer to China. So we need basically to make them an offer. That would be interesting. And at the time I had already said, I mean, I don't understand this logic, why wouldn't Russia want to be both close to Europe and close to China? Basically, until February 24, 2022, that's precisely what Russia was doing, you know, using its economic partnership and relationship with the Europeans, benefiting massively from it, and yet, you know, building a closer relationship with China. I, I, I didn't understand why, why we think we can do en même temps and why it would have to be a zero-sum game for other partners or adversaries. I think for basically... Putin managed to milk as much as possible from this logic for a long time. I understand where Macron comes from, and I think it still plays in this relationship. But, you know, Liana said that it came just a week after Xi Jinping and, and Putin were together for hours on end at a dinner, you know, clearly demonstrating to the world that they had this close 
not only partnership, but actually personal relationship too. And that, and that China was not willing to, to play the role that we're all calling it to play as a responsible stakeholder on the international stage. Zelensky himself has been asking to meet with Xi Jinping, to call, to have a call with him. He, you know, I think the, the, the thinking that Basically, today, Xi Jinping is the only person who can weigh in on Putin is, is a logic that's followed basically by most people. Xi Jinping is isolated, but he's made the whole world dependent on China. So he benefits from this position massively and he can talk to Putin. But he's not, you know, he's had call to do that from a lot of people and he's not been willing to do so. So it was probably good to push for it. But I think the agenda going to China was so huge. On Macron's side, maybe he should have focused on the Ukraine dimension. And I would also add, as I said, I think he was very deliberate in, in, in saying these things. I think AUKUS, the trauma of AUKUS is something that we shouldn't underestimate here. I think Macron had uh, the feeling that the U.S., you know, at some point would betray the Europeans or would, would let the Europeans defend for themselves. And for him, AUKUS was a confirmation, a pretty violent confirmation of that. And the sense of betrayal at the time from France was, was really huge. And so I think he's, I think the relationship is better now. And the state visit when Macron came to the US in December 2022 actually went pretty well. But it is in the backdrop of his mind that something can happen and Europeans might just be left alone at some point and so we need to prepare for that the, the only thing is again e even if the analysis is right the way he's going about uh it is not okay and if he finds himself isolated and you know if strategic autonomy can happen basically in spite of him then that is a problem because he feel you know it we should be able to do this together and i think a lot of people americans and europeans are saying yes europe needs to be stronger this is actually serious there is a war going on right now and Europe has done, you know, I think part of its share since the beginning of the war, but not nearly enough. And so this is the conversation that we should be having. And also thinking about what Europe being a responsible stakeholder on the international scene means. And once again, if we're serious about Ukraine, then we need to be serious about Taiwan. These are two different situations, but if it's about coherence as well. And I think once again, what he said undermined his whole strategy. This is This is what, you know, apart from driving wedges with allies and partners, which is another discussion in itself, the very fact that this undermines his own strategy is something that leaves me a bit baffled. Yeah. Um, lots of different directions to go in. Liana, you said something earlier about kind of where Germany will come down on the China question, and you said you hope they'll be closer to von der Leyen. How would you articulate where Germany is at the moment, right? The Baerbach now has her trip uh, to Beijing, and it's been billed as she, this is her opportunity to set the record straight. But obviously, she's in a different position, it seems, than Scholz. So how would you characterize where Germany is at the moment on the China question? And then I'm really um, interested in hearing from both of you how you would articulate the differences in China policy between France and Germany. Yeah. Well, so I think Annalena Baerbock's trip to Beijing is a really difficult time right now because whatever she does, I mean, it looks in a way that she sort of corrects Macron's performance, which is, I mean, not only in terms of protocol, but just also in terms of European message, it's just mm -hmm. not helpful. Um, and Beijing all, only we 
they needs to read um, German newspapers and German reporting to see that the coalition in Germany is divided on China policy and that Baerbock actually is in a weak position on that and that she is overruled by the chancery quite often. So from Beijing's perspective, the question really is why should they take um, Baerbock serious now doing her trip if they know that whatever she says has no influence and they just have to wait what the chancery says and, and, and what happens. So it's a little bit a trip which you know is perhaps helpful for herself and for her positioning and for her positioning in the Green Party but in terms of, of the wider dynamics it's yeah it's a, it's a little bit uh, not futile but it's uh, it, it can't really change the, 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 the politics around it. And again, I think the domestic situation in Germany within the three-party coalition of the Social Democrats, the Greens, and the Liberals, that has also really been a problem in, um, in, in, in defining Germany's China policy. So there is a China strategy that is developed in Berlin, and it has been on the tables for a couple of months already, but it is not yet published because from the chancellor's side, there are concerns that this, this strategy is too hawkish, it's focused too much on human rights aspects. So they have blocked the strategy for now, also with the argument that first Germany has to bring out its national security strategy, which also, again, is in the German foreign ministry led by Baerbock and is also, again, <laughs> blocked by the chancery. So she's really in an unfortunate position where her power base is continuously um, undermined and the national security strategy is still not out. Um, and uh, even in the discussions around the national security strategy, it seems that the idea of creating a national security council, which was so important, would have been so important for Germany, was just killed altogether because there was no agreement on where the National Security Council would be positioned in the foreign ministry or in the chancery. So this reflects how all this infighting in the German coalition really has an influence on the on the formation of, of policy. And um, with Olaf Scholz's trip to Beijing, it seemed that he would set China policy and whatever Baerbock does afterwards really doesn't matter. So, and what he's doing, and that's also the difference to Macron, um, he framed his trip to Beijing as part of other trips that he was doing. I mean, he went to Japan first, and he really tries to push forward this idea of um, diversifying. And also, he has also supported this idea of de-risking, but being very clear that decoupling is not what Germany is going for. What is sort of the biggest weakness so far is that um, he and the Chancellor have not been willing to rein in those very big companies that actually increase their investments in China. So BSF or Volkswagen, for instance, have after the outbreak of the war increased investments in China, which with a little bit you know, this kind of thinking, those companies are too big to fail for Germany. So even if there is an escalation with China and they depend on more than 50% of their profits on the Chinese market, um, they will be bailed out by German taxpayers. So there's really no incentive for those companies to reduce some of their, not engage, not reduce the engagement, but to stop sort of getting even deeper into the Chinese market, because from their side, they're, they're too big to fail for the German market, uh, for the for the German market. And that's really a problem. That's the biggest weakness in, 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 in Scholz's China strategy. Um, and again, uh, this, uh, this inner in a coalition fighting in Germany is making, uh, and, and also because it's so public again, <laughs> makes it makes Germany look weaker than um, what they've actually done. There was an interesting reporting that um, the team around von der Leyen was actually concerned that in many European capitals, there was some kind of backsliding on China policy, that many capitals 
have become softer because the outbreak of the war is, you know, it's already more than a year ago. And because this kind of belief that we need China to influence Moscow in our favor has become stronger. But and that's also something that you will hear in Berlin, that Russia and China are two different issues and two different boxes. And you will not hear a lot of people who underline the parallels that we have two autocrats who are becoming increasingly isolated, prone to mistakes and to decision-making and surrounded by yes-men. So people are rather emphasizing the differences instead of the parallels. And that's um, a development which should not only worry von der Leyen's team. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I fully subscribe to, ah, sorry, Jim, go ahead. Oh, no, 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 go, go ahead. I was just telling uh, Andrea that I had a, a question. I'm sorry. So I, I fully subscribe to what Liana was saying. And I think I think there is a fear right now that precisely because, you know, Germany is doing its own thing with China and France is going to China as well on its own. And now von der Leyen is going and a number of European member states, you know, some pretty prominent European member states wanted to sign on uh, a memorandum of understanding to join the BRI, so the Belt and Road Initiative with China. There was a constitution of a, a number of countries, 17 plus one, so a number of Central and Eastern European countries that wanted to have a special form, forum of discussion with China. A number of them have withdrawn now, namely the Baltic states, uh, after after the Lithuania-China spat. But actually, there are still a few of those inside. And, you know, a number of European countries still looking at Huawei to be able to deploy 5G infrastructure, all the while we're talking about, in, you know, implementing an investment screening mechanism at the EU level, an anti-coercion instrument at the EU level as well. So it's really interesting to see that there are actually, I would say, Things are moving forward inside the EU thinking, but a number of member states are just saying, well, you know, so Germany would be too big to fail, but also China is too big of a market to give up on. There is no market in the world today that can replace the Chinese market. And if we're so focused on diversifying away from Russia, we can't really dedicate the same energy to fully diversifying away from China. We can diversify away a bit from China and we can add more partners to work with. But a number of countries are, I would agree, not ready to do that um, fully yet. France has always been very, I would say, ambiguous when it comes to its China policy. It's less economically dependent on it than Germany is, but it's still, you know, there are a lot of people inside the administration who had admiration for the Chinese system, who've learned Chinese, who, you know, somewhat subscribe to this idea that China is is this grandiose civilization, you know, thousands years old, etc. One of the person who went on the trip with Macron, Jean-Pierre Raffarin, is a former French prime minister. He's very much someone who defends China you know, all the time on French radio, TV, he he pens um, op-eds in the Chinese media as well. So he is very much also part of those people who say, well, you know, now Europe, so he used to say France needs to build a, a separate kind of third way uh, between the US and China and France is entitled to its own uh, foreign policy on China. He's saying that at the EU level now, which is, which first of all, he doesn't have the competency for, but which I think is problematic because Everything that we've been saying is we are not building a third way. If we have to choose between the U.S. and China, it's pretty obvious that we would have to choose the U.S. But Europe does have its own interest to defend. And I think this is, yes, a more nuanced line that I think initially Macron wanted to defend and that he's not defended actually, that he's basically gone against. And so 
we're hearing a number of people from Macron's uh, team and political parties uh, talking about European independence when precisely these were the words that we were not using until last week. So that is, I mean, I don't know, there's some form of chaos right now when it comes to France's China policy. Uh, and there needs, you know, there. I think there needs to be a, now a closer affirmation of what, of what France's position is on Taiwan. And I, I hope that this will be one of the outcomes uh, of this trip and of this whole discussion that has been ongoing for the past few days. And I think that will continue going on. Uh, but in terms of European China policy, I, I, I find really interested that interesting that von der Leyen basically preempted this discussion with her speech at Merrick's, which was, I think, more more strategic and constructed than most would have anticipated and and in a way she's also you know one can wonder the extent to which she's going outside of her mandate here because i'm not sure the extent to which she coordinated with the european external action service or with um the european council either i mean you can see that this is also her line i'm I'm sure there was some coordination of course but it's interesting to see that she is also the incarnation now of this European voice on China. So there is, I would say, a bit of pressure on her shoulders because she'll have to deliver. But but I, you can see this new face of Europe that's emerging. And I find that very interesting. I know Jim wants to ask a question, but just to, to hear both of you talk about the German and French position, they don't seem all that far apart. Yet we keep talking about kind of the tension in the French-German relationship. And I do think that the speech did aggravate that. So with the speech, like just to hear very briefly from both of you, where do we, where do you think we are in the, in the the Franco-German engine? Where is the French-German relationship at the moment? How would you character, how would you describe it or characterize it? Complicated. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's not just the China position. I think honestly, there are, I would say on our, we are on different wavelengths when it comes to the strategic outlook, when it comes to Ukraine. That's also why I find it so interesting that often France and Germany are put together. I think the outlook on Ukraine is actually quite different. Maybe in the end, the interpretation seems to be the same for other partners, but I think we're quite far off. I mean, it's there are a number of issues uh, economically, financially, uh, on foreign policy where we don't really see eye to eye and where you know there's a struggle to, to move things forward, I would say. And I would add, I mean, there's a lot of folklore, obviously, you know, in the L'Amitié, Francois Monde, and so on. But if we see how sort of Macron and Scholz have laid out the visions for Europe, I mean, they have done this, I mean, separately, right? I mean, uh, Scholz have given a speech in in Prague um, where France didn't play a major role. Um, And obviously this, yeah, and obviously, I mean, this complicates Germany's position in Europe, complicates the whole situation because being sort of the middle power that Germany is, it always feels sort of torn between the Central and Eastern Europeans whose voice becomes stronger and more powerful and between France. Um, So, I mean, I'm repeating myself if I'm advocating for the Weimar Triangle and let's see how the Polish elections go because I think that's such an important, the most important axis and format that actually would bring Europe, would bring Europe forward. Um, but this this disregard that Central and Eastern Europeans feel when it comes to France, which is also why they don't criticize France too much, because they've almost lost hope when it comes to, to France. And at the same time, Germany's idea of being a bridge in Europe, that's how Olaf Scholz has outlined his position, makes it obviously difficult to continue this old tradition of the German-French engine 
where in reality in Europe in these times you need a German, French, Polish engine, otherwise nothing nothing works. Boy, that's so interesting. There's no UK engine in there, is there? I mean, well, they I, don't I, want to, right? <laughs> no. You know, I, I still, I mean, it's just as a little side issue. It's, it's just the UK, the UK role in Europe, the UK as part of an engine. To say that it's a French, uh, German, Polish engine is a, is a very interesting perspective. I mean, I, I agree with you, uh, but it's what a, what a change. Uh, what a change. Uh, we should probably do a Brussels sprouts about uh, the, the UK as well. You know, I'm just, just saying that. But my, my question for you, though, is, is this. Um, you know, I'm sitting here in Paris uh, and I get my news from the New York Times International Edition, uh, as well as reading stuff online and, uh, and uh, Le Monde in uh, English. I get that as well. And I still don't know quite where what the White House reaction was. I felt that the initial... Uh, reaction was a bit passive aggressive. Oh, you know, they were, they're kind of in a very soft, gentle way, undercutting what Macron was saying by saying, look, we work closely with you in the Indo-Pacific and we look forward to continuing to work with you there. I.e., you know, whatever you're telling Z, you're doing something else with us. So just reminding you, you know, it was a bit passive aggressive and, and this type of thing. And, and so, but, and, and I know that the headlines in Washington now are all about the leaked messages and, and that kind of thing, the, the documents. But um, but 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 for all of your listeners out here, all the Brussels sprouts listeners out here, including myself out here in Europe, and a lot of our Brussels sprouts listeners are out here. How would the three of you, and this is for you too, Andrea? How how would you describe what you're hearing on the street, uh, what you're hearing from colleagues and others in think tank roundtables and things? Uh, is this kind of in one ear and out the other in Washington? No one's really picking up on it because there's other issues that have crowded crowded it out, or Actually, are you hearing a lot of people who are really upset about this, uh, and uh, but you just don't get it in the media because the media is reporting other things? So that's that's the first question for three for all three of you who are in Washington. Uh, but the second question is this for Tara: If if uh, based on what I just said, if if Biden were to call uh, Macron and say to Macron, "What are you doing?" How would Macron describe what he's doing to the president of the United States? In other words. I know how he would describe it to all of us experts. He would talk about what we were just talking about. But if he's trying to explain away what he was saying and he was talking to Joe Biden, what would he say, do you think? How would how would how would you put it uh, if you were trying to uh, say to the Americans, oh, Joe, look, don't worry. I was just, you know, whatever. So, so first question for all three of you, where is the U.S. on this? I heard Biden said he was that. Macron was kissing Z's ass, which I thought was, I guess, all that in Politico. So I know there's something Trump going said on that. There. Trump said that, didn't, not Biden, Trump. Oh, it was Trump. I'm sorry. You're right. It was Trump. And as you know, Trump is certainly a voice we all listen to. But, uh, but no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, but so where's the U.S. on this? Uh, and then, Tara, really, how would you, how do you think Macron would, would explain himself to the president in a way that doesn't take away from what he's said to Z, you know, he's not going to, he's not going to, um, you know, crumble in front of the president, but he's got to explain it in a way that makes it a little bit better than it sounded. Over to you all. Uh, why don't you go first, Andrea? <laughs> Thanks, Jim. Um, I, I feel, I, I, my sense is that it, that, that the outrage is dissipating rather quickly. Um, 
I, I mean, I, in meetings that I have with Europeans, it's still top of mind. And I feel like everyone feels the need to like clear the air first to say like, oh, we totally disagree with what Macron said. And then we can kind of have a conversation. So there is still a little bit of even with foreigners coming into town, like the need to clear the air and disavow themselves, distance themselves from what Macron said, and then we can carry on. But my sense is that the administration is just extremely keen to uh, paper over any of these divisions to not make this a divisive issue, given what's going on in Ukraine. Um, and so they, they, you know, they put the positive spin on it and also to kind of focus on actions, the fact that the frigate is going through the Taiwan Strait. So yes, Macron can say these things, but French actions really demonstrate their commitment to all of the issues and values that we, that we that, you know, hold dear and, and stand for. So I think it's really just trying to downplay it and that will, you know, it's another kind of Macron comment that has everyone in an uproar, we'll spin around and then we'll all move on. But, but that, that's yeah. not, most important is that it, that we can't let these issues be divisive. And, yeah. and I think people also go to great pains to um, emphasize the difference between the interviews. So Politico is kind of one thing, but if you read the full interview, people kind of go to great length to say, well, it wasn't as bad if you kind of read the whole thing. So I, 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 it's a lot of trying to explain it away a little bit in downplay. I'll be very quick because Tower has to leave. It reminds me a little bit of the tank. Um, a tank drama that Germany was in where, you know, on the outside, everyone was saying, oh, everything is fine. But on the inside, there was quite a quite a lot of annoyance with, with, with Germany. And I think one aspect that is probably important here too is what kind of effect has this on the voices in Congress, the minority voices, but that right. are still there and that are decisive right. and who use the pretext that Europe is not doing enough and that we need to focus on China to sort of advance the debate on, well, we have to cut funding for Ukraine and we can't continue the funding for Ukraine. And there, I think we, Macron did not do himself or any other Europeans a favor because it's really sort of members of Congress which went on air and became upset about it. And it will provide so much ammunition for them to say in the future, well, look, that's what Europeans are not doing anything and they would not come to our help in Taiwan. So why the hell are we engaged yeah. in Ukraine? And I think that's a real, real narrative danger. Um, that's a good point. Tara. And I fully agree. I'm actually wondering whether the administration is not downplaying this, as Andrea said, you know, to kind of move, move over, but also precisely because Republicans were in such uproar that it, if it appeared that both Congress and the administration was angry about Macron, then basically it would have undermined everyone's agenda. So I'm wondering uh, in the Biden administration's reaction, whether there's not the idea that there is no, the more attention you give to this, the longer it lasts, but also not to give the impression that all Americans are against Macron, which would, I think, not be helpful in any case. Car, really uh, quickly, I just pulled up the Rubio quote. His quote was, if Europe doesn't, quote unquote, pick sides between the US and China over Taiwan, then maybe we shouldn't be picking sides either on Ukraine was the, so I think that's a great point too. Yeah. So that, I think that plays, you know, there's, I guess, a domestic and foreign policy dimension to, to Biden and the administration's reaction to this. Um, how would Macron describe it to Biden? I would say, I think, I mean, I have no idea. I, you know, I am not in his mind, but I think he would say what he's been saying since the beginning and particularly since August, which is that he, he believes it's in the U.S.'s interest for Europe to do more, to be a more capable actor and that it needs to focus on being stronger right now. And so, you know, he, I, I think for, from his point of view, all of this is coherent. I think when we're, when you look at it, 
I think he undermines himself. But his from his point of view, all of this makes sense. And, you know, and he's been pushing for that. One of the things that he wanted in the declaration with Biden was for Biden to say, yes, we do want a stronger Europe. He was Macron was very keen on that. And, you know, about making Europe stronger, maybe together. And if Europe has to decide and has to defend its own interests, then that's what Europe would do. I think from, again, Macron's point of view, there is no contradiction there. Yeah. Well, this has been uh, wonderful as always. Um, thank you both for doing it. I'm sure we will do it again. Uh, and thanks, yeah, thanks for taking the time for, and for all the excellent insights, great points and great discussion. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.